Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefo Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another book club. Uh, before we get into this one, content warning for addiction issues, political trauma and violence, immigration trauma, sexism and racism. We're not going to get too deep into any of that stuff, but totally hear you if you're like, I can't deal with yeah. that today for whatever reason. <laughs> right. And this is a great book. And yes. if you have that depth to be able to wade past through that, mm-hmm. and this is a recommended one. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Today we're talking about Gabriela Garcia's book of Women and Salt, a novel that covers five generations of mothers and daughters from Cuba to Miami, other places, and their struggles around things like politics and immigration and addiction and the cyclical nature of trauma, which I think is a story we've been seeing a lot lately. Yeah, that's a trend. That's a huge trend. I feel I feel like we talked about mothers before, but all of a sudden the mother-daughter aspect has come through. Yes. Pretty With heavily. The grandmother in as well. Like it's usually yeah. three generations. Yeah. Yeah. Look We're out talking for about Encanto. Encanto. Like, and we got an episode red. on Turning Red coming yes. up. So yes, yes, yes. Look out for that. But this book is absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking and presents so many scenarios where these external forces are working against the characters. Like I feel like it's great in, in the sense that it's tragic and you can see where character wants to do more, but because of all these other things that they can't control, they can't. Right. And that hurts someone else in their orbit, but the, like they legitimately didn't have the option right. to help them. There's a similar parallel between all of them about how they try so desperately to connect with their child, mm-hmm. but inevitably push them away. And it's mm-hmm. like a generational thing, once again, as you said. It is, it is. It's a very interesting, heartbreaking, but beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty recent. And Garcia, you can find some really good interviews with her about it, where she talks about kind of her own experience and why she wrote it. And I think it was 
she was really well spoken about what she was trying to accomplish, right. and I think she did accomplish it. So, random fact. So apparently, she took a class with Roxane Gay. Oh. And after she published this book, if you listen to the audio version, <clears throat> mm-hmm. there is a snippet of their interview. Roxane Gay interviewed Gabriella about the book. It was nice. It was a nice mm-hmm. little exchange. I love that. I love that. I know Roxane Gay reviewed the book, so yeah. that's always mm-hmm. that's always cool. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in this book, you've got Maria Isabel, who became the first woman to roll cigars and later the first woman to read in this community um, in Cuba in 1866. You've got Jeanette, who witnessed an ICE raid next door to her home in Miami in 2014 and offers food and shelter to a young girl named Anna, who got left behind after her mother, Glory, was detained in this ICE raid and sent to an immigration center in Texas. Uh, We later get chapters from Anna and Gloria's point of view. You also briefly hear from Jeanette's mother, Carmen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and there there are other women involved. Um, and it kind of reminds me, I feel like this was a, it's pretty simple to keep track of the threads, even though they're not told in a strictly chronological manner. There is right. sort of an overarching chronology, right. but not strictly. Yeah, and uh, it, this was originally short stories. Uh, mm-hmm. So not all of them. There was a, f- I think she had written a couple of chapters as short stories and then brought them together. And mm-hmm. I know that was some of the like reviews, people were very, not upset, but really so confused. It just felt like it was too much. And also mm-hmm. they're, they're like, I didn't like, I don't like short stories. So for her to write it like this makes me feel deceived that they call it a novel, which is still a novel. Yeah. BT dubs. It kind of reminds me of Fanny and Zoe. Was his mm-hmm. Salinger book, and that's how it kind of originated as well. But I love this. I love this style anyway. But yes, it does jump around so much. Like Annie and I have had to be like, wait, so this, this, and this. But it's also one of those books when you come to the end, you realize what happened, and yeah. you feel like you need to go back. <laughs> yes, yes. And in the front of the book, she has a like family tree mm-hmm. situation. Uh, so you can kind of keep track that way. Because it reminded me of when we read Joy Luck Club. Yeah. And I kept getting the names. Yeah. Like, wait, who is this? And how are they related to this yeah. person? And how are they related to this person? Um, I feel like this overall was simpler just because there a lot of their stories were, while they were very similar threads, were very right. different. So I could be like, okay, this is... Maria Isabel, who's rolling cigars in 1866. Right. <laughs> like, that's very different than Jeanette in Miami right. uh, in 2014. Right. But still, yeah, we, Samantha and I had to have a little conversation. Yes, we may still have in between this as well. So let's <laughs> yeah. go. Yes. So there are a lot of themes we wanted to touch on on this one. One of the ones that I feel jumped out immediately to me was this sort of idea of having secrets of these hidden selves and also along those lines of addiction and not Mm -hmm. talking about that or trying to hide that. Um, So in the first chapter, I believe, here's this quote. Sun child, hair permanently whisked by the wind, you were happy once. I see it looking over these photos. Such smiles. How was I to know you held such a secret? All I knew was that you smiled for a time and then you didn't. Listen, I have secrets too. And if you'd stop killing yourself, if you'd get sober, maybe you could sit down. Maybe I could tell you. Maybe you'd understand why I made certain decisions like fighting to keep our family together. Maybe there are forces neither of us examined. Maybe if I had a way of seeing all the past, all the paths, maybe I'd have some answer as to why. 
Why did our lives turn out this way? And I love that quote because it's in the very beginning. And I think that's a good kind of thesis statement (laughs) for what the book is about because it's the book examines these paths and this past Mm -hmm. um, and how everyone ended up where, where they ended up and all of the external forces and the trauma that led to that point. And I think this whole idea of... I don't know. I've been thinking about this too. Of You have this idea of what a person is and how they feel. And um, like my mom, for instance, she keeps these baby books and they're very detailed and they're very sweet. But it's kind of strange to know like how our lives turned out and not that, you know, anything super tragic has happened, but, you know, based on this baby book that I think she's looking at and then right. the trajectory. Right. Of, I, of our lives. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think about the, the secrets, which is, again, is a theme mm-hmm. throughout the book. It's like them sharing or trying to protect uh, their families by these small secrets. And I think about that because uh, as I was with someone else's family, we were all hanging out and I was getting to know them about their childhood or about their past. And the children who are their children, where they were listening to this, they're like, I never knew this about you. What? And trying to get more information. But as an outsider, of course, I would ask these questions because it would go deeper in. And because as the child, you don't think beyond what you already know of them. And you don't really like, you hear small stories, sure, about their past, but you really don't get the in-depth look of who they were at that point in time, where they traveled, what they've done, what they were ran from, what they were scared of. Like all of these conversations are like, wow, wow. I knew you had a life. I never thought to go beyond just what I know from what you told me. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's so many things to asking the deeper questions. And I'm sure like there's definitely families who do that. But typically, as the children who ha- are caught up in their own issues, and we have a lot of them, the children that is, mm-hmm. that come up and open to these new secrets or new discoveries, it's a whole different thing. It becomes a whole different conversation. I always found that fascinating about when you really start to discover and then you have that moment of clicking up like, wow, that was you? You did that? You, wow, I didn't know that. Like that's kind of that level. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that given, again, what you and I mentioned, like movies like Encanto and Turning Red, there's this whole idea of the younger person not realizing that the older person uh, in this, you know, like, mother, grandmother, daughter situation. Yeah, struggled and had a life and is dealing with trauma as well. And maybe you don't know what happened in their life. And I remember when I was in college, I found out that my dad had a previous wife and had gotten divorced and it was really painful. And I was like, how did I not know? Like, I'm an adult and I never heard this story. (laughs) Wouldn't it just happen? Right. My mom was like, oh yeah, I thought you knew. I'm like, What? (laughs) I would remember talking about this. Right. Yeah, but kind of those secrets we keep in families to keep the family together. Or, yeah, functioning. And then you realize, like, oh, I thought I was the only one keeping secrets. They're keeping secrets, too. And everybody in the family is kind of doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It is interesting. Here's another quote, uh, and this is from... So that first quote was from Carmen, Jeanette's mother. This is from Jeanette. 
The man at the door slides his thumbnail over the tab of his beer. He looks at the nail. She can taste the beer, a memory on the tongue. Why is it that men can be hard drinkers, suave and smooth, leather and whiskey? Her father, a woman who can't stop, is simply a mess, irresponsible. So Jeanette struggles with addiction and sobriety. So I just thought that was really interesting because I do think... I think this is changing, but for a long time, that has been the case in our media of like, oh, he's a real man. He's drinking his bourbon uh, in the dark, like in the yeah. dim light, and he's doing it at work or he's doing it late after work and ignoring his family or whatever it is. And that's like how men are, and that's acceptable. Right. They're just down in their luck type of thing, or yeah. they're just coming from a hard day's work. Like all of these conversations that really make them look like that they deserve. Or of course they would be at this point in time, instead of being neglectful. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Um, I've been thinking about kind of along the lines of our strategic incompetence episode about how we also kind of glorify Mm self-destruction, especially in men. Women, Mm -hmm. you're like falling apart, get your life together. But in men, it's like, oh, what trauma has put you here? What... Right, put you here. And I think that's a really harmful... I think that's harmful in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, But I do think that's something that we've done. Like, if you think of something like Mad Men, where they're like, oh, these men are messed up, but they're like drinking their bourbon, and it's a great character point, and it's so interesting. And I'm like... "Uh." Right. (laughs) Right. In the office. Yeah. Don't know we should be celebrating this. <laughs> I think it's meant to show a flaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not um, sexy. Let's not say that's a sexy. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> let's not ignore that it happens, but let's not glorify it and say yeah. it's a good thing. Okay, here's another quote. A moment ago, Jeanette had thought she'd reached the precipice of who she wanted to be, thought she'd finally walk the halls of Gables High like a harder girl, like the ones with boyfriends who didn't have to lie about sexual experience. So this is, we got a couple of quotes about this um, and we're getting to the others in a second. But I want to include them because I feel like a lot of people will connect with this when you're in high school and you think you have to be this sexual being. Slash also no, because you don't want to be seen as immature. People oftentimes sexualize them whether they want to or not, whether it's how they dress, whether it's what they say, whether it's what they like. Yeah. Again, let's look at Turning Red. If well, I know we're going to talk about it, but they the one of the big controversies was are you sexualizing these teenagers and all they really thought about was having a crush on a young boy. Right. A boy band. Right. Oh gosh, I cannot wait to talk about that. But I, <laughs> I also think that, like that's a really good point you brought up of the we stigmatize like sex ed and any sexuality with young girls. So as young girls, we feel like we can't ask. Yeah. But we also have to know or we'll be made fun of. Right. Or we have to know uh, because we have to understand what we're saying. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, because we're trying to show our maturity as we're expected to be, mm-hmm. make it up. And then, yeah, we, we go into a cycle that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. 
Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. So here's one of the first quotes. But she pictured the men following through on their promises, shoving her into their cars to f*** her, to f*** that juicy f-. That's what those cooler, harder girls did, wasn't it? They got f- but she couldn't picture the popular boys at school, boys like Chris and Raul and Marcelo, talking to their girlfriends like that, expressing such raw desire. She was amazed that she could inspire such want, such need. She was baffled that these same men who shouted at her and Sasha did things that, say, her mother and father did. She could not picture her father f***ing her mother, she thought. These men want me more than anyone wants my mother, more than anyone wants the coolest girl in the school. Then she felt good. And yeah, and this is that same conversation is that we really feel like our worth is based on how sexy we are. Not understanding how traumatic that is, but because we see it so often or being, we are told that we are often, oh, you're going to break hearts or you're, you're going to be so pretty. You're going to break those boys' hearts. That's what we think our worth is based on and understanding. I am more value because someone wants to have sex with me than this other person. Right. And Going back to our conversation we had recently on consent, um, this is another thing that I'm talking about when I say, like, I think we're in a, a society where consent, like, true consent is almost impossible because we're raising girls to think like this and to want to be the hard girl that everyone wants to have sex with. And that's dangerous. Like, you, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. And I remember when I was, like, in high school, college, people would catcall me and I would, like, smile and feel flattered. Like, I'll admit it. Like, feel it. Um, and then one time, it put me in a really unsafe situation where this guy, like, pushed me against the wall and started kissing me. And I didn't know what to do because it was, like, I should feel good about this, right? Right. But I don't want this, do I? And I right. just froze. I totally froze. I mean, it's definitely that whole situation of 
feeling like this is our worth, being told this is a good thing, you're desired, this is what you want, this is what the TV tells you, that this is who you are, then you get there and you're not told how you should react when something goes the way you don't want it. But because you think this is your worth, you have to follow through to get mm-hmm. that value. Right, right. And there's like the also the question of safety and also... You know, if you do go through with it, then you've got the slut-shaming aspect. Right, right. And which is probably already traumatizing because that experience oftentimes is traumatizing if it's led by this route. Yeah. I'm not understanding. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, So here's another quote. And if we didn't specify, I think we did. But uh, Jeanette, at this point, is like high school underage. (laughs) She's like 15, 14. Yeah, she's young. Mm -hmm. All right. So, quote, Do you like it raw? Manny had said to her in class one day. Jeanette had no idea what he meant, though now she knew. But she had feigned knowledge because she liked that Manny thought she was the kind of girl who'd know. She liked that Manny pinched her waist and winked when he said it. Look, I'm not going to pretend I can stop you from, you know, doing, you know, her mother had said, refusing to meet Jeanette's eyes. I just want you to know that nobody is going to want you for serious things, things like marriage, if you are, you know, if you've been, well, if you've been used already. Jeanette had giggled. Nobody looked more used up than her mother. She'd never have said it to her, but Jeanette knew her mother was just jealous her father didn't want to use her anymore, that nobody wanted to use her mother, that her mother was useless. Right. There's so many sad things to this. Yeah. And you know, though, I, I I do reminisce to the fact that when Jeanette was like, she didn't, she wanted to be one of the cool girls. She didn't want him to know. So she just pretended. Mm-hmm. I was definitely thought I was the cool girl because I was the one at one point in time telling people about sex. Like mm-hmm. This was like fourth, fifth grade. I was the bad girl and people thought I was so cool. One dude actually asked me to be his girlfriend because I cursed a lot. That was my whole oh, rebellion, wow. by the way. I didn't do uh-huh. anything else, but that was it. <laughs> and that was, I was like, oh yeah, I am the cool, hard girl. Let's go. You know, mm-hmm. there's this level of like, Feeling that pride, I'm not sure if it's because you get this attention and or you feel safe because you do feel like you're mature so that you can tell everybody to F off, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. But yes, we do see this new angle of competing with the mother, a lot of a lot of like conversations and how badly they can go awry. There's, there's so many things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I... One of the reasons I want to include this is because I have a very similar memory to this. When I was in seventh grade, this guy essentially was asking if I like blowjobs, but I didn't know what he meant. And he made like a gesture and I didn't get it, but I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it started this whole rumor about me and I became known as a very like sexual person. And I felt, I think I leaned into that hard because I mm-hmm. was kind of like not interested in sex. So. Right. I, and I thought it was cool uh, to have that. But there's so many memories I look back on now that haunt me to this day. Mm-hmm. And then this conversation with the mother of like, it's it's tricky because she is saying essentially like, you can't have sex you're going to be used up. And that's implying the thing we've talked about, that this is your worth, this is your value. But also on Jeanette's side, it's unhealthy that she thinks, oh, well, it's cool though. So they're not, neither of them are having a healthy view on this. Right. It's not helping anybody. (laughs) Well, obviously, like the mother has come in a whole different view and we're going to talk Mm -hmm. about the mom 
Carmen, her her background a little bit. But yeah, I mean, but this is that whole purity level, right? That yep. we've talked about before. We've had that episode about uh, virginity and purity and how toxic it can, it can be. And this is one of those conversations of you really think by calling me dirty and trashy, if I do these things that I'm going to, it's going to prevent me from these things. The whole analogy of like the, you know, virgin bride, the being absolutely pure and 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 and, and like this whole level of unused, uh, like, it's just such a gross conversation anyway. And yeah. it is, it's completely pertaining to girls only. Yeah, it is. Ugh. Oh. Um, and I want to include this quote because it resonated with me so much. She was so tired of pretending to get things. <laughs> I I feel that so hard. Like that was my whole, I just felt like the whole time I was just trying to figure out how to appear normal and fit in with everyone else. And everyone else, in my mind, it seemed to be like having sex was cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had one group that disagreed, but most other people (laughs) were like, yes, this is what you want, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so this whole thing has been based on a club scene where Jeanette goes to this club very young. And that whole scene, I was so upset with how much I was like, yep, that's mm-hmm. happened to me. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's happened to me. And again, she's massively underage, like older men hitting on her. And she ends up going with one of these older men in his car to a beach. Um, here's a quote. As Johnson undid her shorts, as he tugged her at her tank top, she wanted to yell that he should stop. Not because she wanted to, but because why would he want to be exactly what everyone expected? Didn't he know how exhausting it was? She couldn't find her voice, but it didn't matter. Jeanette knew it then. Harder girls weren't happy. Probably nobody was. Right. Right. Oof. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, and it did begin, the chapter began, if I remember correctly, of them stumbling onto a dead body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is part of the scene uh, that we come back to, it flashes back, because we do have an in-between scene as it opens. But yeah, I think it's really, there's so many, again, to that point of that whole scene with her friend where they're trying to get cigarettes, pretending to be uh, over uh, like a uh, certain age, and then the friend trying, like, girl, no, let's go. Girl, what are you doing? I was the person that was like, no, we're leaving. Like, I, I, like my survivor instinct was too heavy at that point. Like, uh-uh, we, we got to go, we got to go. But, yeah, that whole need to be cool, not sure what was going to happen, wanting to take risks, uh, really not understanding what that risk is. And, yes, this dude absolutely pretending like he didn't know her age. And then at the end when he's like, we can't call the cops because I yeah. know you're like, what, 15? Mm-hmm. I love those excuses. She lied about her age. Yeah, knew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's... Oh, it's so predatory. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like It's it's weird when you're in it. Because I remember being that age and being, again, you know, like, ooh, flattered. But looking back, I'm like, oh, that was gross. That was yeah. so gross. Like, he had to know I was oh, yeah. underage, like sloppy drunk or whatever. But also, we talked about when we first started working together, Samantha, we did that trauma miniseries, and we talked about Mm -hmm. how those kind of self-destructive instincts can manifest in trauma. And I feel like that's sort of what's happening here, and coupled with this really toxic messaging that you need to be this cool girl who will have sex, who is sexually desired. Right. 
And it's hard because I feel like I was also like you. I generally didn't. I kind of was like, I got to get out of here. I don't think you should right. go with this guy. But it, I also felt weird because they I, kind of made me feel like a prude. And that's not a great conversation either. Because <laughs> like, I was just trying to look out for my friends. I didn't want to be controlling, but I was concerned. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's so many yeah. things. Mm-hmm. There's so many things. Um, and then moving on, of course, and we're, we're going to go on to the next quote of the, in the books that we like. Of course, Carmen hadn't known about the abuse. So we're coming back to the mother's perspective. For God's sake, she stayed with Julio because she thought he had a level of love and affection for Jeanette that would dissipate under the weight of separate homes because she, Carmen, knew better than anyone what it was to lose a father. She understood why Jeanette had waited until Julio died to tell her, why she had let Carmen mourn this man, live with him all those years, sleep in a bed beside him, this man who was now an infection eating through her. She would have killed him had she known. She would have called the police. Would that have saved Jeanette? Even she knew that was a lie. So at this point, we know that Jeanette had been molested, and she even mentions that during her time in talking about the dude uh, that she rides in the car with. It continues on to say, but she absolutely knew it could be. How many nights had she woken to drunken Julio over her body? How many times had she fought him off and then given in, thinking, I'm married to him. Isn't this just duty? How the violation had strangled her. How she'd willed herself another life. She had thought herself a bad wife. Yeah, and that's one of the pieces we're talking about when you talk about like the secret selves and hiding these things from people. Because, and all the trauma, the intergenerational trauma, because Carmen lost a father and she was trying to prevent that so hard. Right, right. That perhaps she missed these signs. And then Jeanette didn't want to break up the family, didn't want to mess this up. So she didn't tell Carmen, her mother, until after Julio died. Right. So it's like both of them trying to protect the family. Right. And... It's hurting yeah. both of them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure, like, we, both of us have talked about our own traumas and that that we have done that. We continue mm-hmm. to do that uh, to a certain extent and why we feel like it's important to do so. So, you know, who knows, in our later life, maybe it'll be another conversation similar to the book results uh, of them not talking. I don't know. But them thinking that at that point in time, it was for the best um, and not understanding. And I will say... In this book, I really kind of, I really appreciated uh, Gabriella's uh, way of framing the abuse. Mm -hmm. So it was not necessarily constant molestation. It was not necessarily rape, but Mm -hmm. it was molestation and it was definitely sexual abuse. But I like that she didn't mitigate the trauma that it caused. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that's what happens so often. And so that's why we women who have been molested but have not been raped will say things like, but it wasn't that bad. And try to minimize it ourselves because it doesn't feel as bad as if it had been continuously like that type of level. But that it's still that traumatic and it still ruins relationships. It ruins your life. It ruins what you know of safety. Mm -hmm. And so even though... Like it was to me, maybe it was safer. I don't know the decisions, but it connected with me as a person who's been through both of those that to have this being placed as a forefront of being a big issue, even if by standards, A, it's not provable. And we know that because I've seen this in court cases too many times as other abuses, but B, it is is traumatic to that person and that family 
So I feel like that narrative and the way she framed it was really, really well done. And I feel like validated so many of the victims who have gone through similar situations. Yeah, I agree. And I've talked about this with my therapist because some in one session I got confused. I was like, I don't understand why this incident, which is less traumatic, is upsetting me more than this other thing. And I think there's so many factors that go into that, like the circumstances, the people involved, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I totally, I totally agree. Um, And that's one of the things I wrote down about this when I was reading this section was that whole idea we've talked about before of it could have been worse. Like, I feel like that was going on here of sort of dismissing things because it could have been worse. It wasn't that bad. It could have been worse. And we know how damaging that is. Right. Yeah. And we also see through that a lot of this book is we see the trauma and the fallout of this abuse and how it affects other people. Because I think that's a big point, a big theme of it is just sort of this domino effect right. of a traumatic event. Yeah, you know, even from my own experience, and I, I I don't know about you, again, going through something similar to this, just like for Jeanette and her mom, and they finally have it out, and her mom's reaction was not great. Mm-hmm. She didn't trust her as a child. Uh, she didn't, she, she was not, and even though Carmen didn't know, there's still that point of, like, moment of, like, you're the parent for the, as me as a child, thinking on the adults in my life, at that point, like, you are the person who I trusted. I didn't get that protection, so I don't trust you. I may love you, but I'm definitely not going to come to you and that my traumas are not going to be relayed to you because you can't handle it. Or in my head, you can't handle it. Or you're not willing to handle it. Or you're not willing to protect me from it. So all of these things, like, it kind of just really delved into, this is why the trust issue happened in mm-hmm. the first place, is that she felt unprotected in her home so therefore, why would she trust the people who are in that home? Right. And it, that's hugely damaging to, mm-hmm. to trust somebody to protect you or to even go to somebody and then they don't believe you or they're kind of like, well, don't rock the boat. Right. That sticks with you. <laughs> yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. 
Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Uh, Here's another quote. It's been only a month together in my apartment, and I want him to stay so bad that I am afraid. No man has ever given me so much attention. It made me feel like some kind of savior. I am constantly calibrating who to be, what kind of woman Mario wants, though I know that he likes me because he thinks me the kind of woman not constantly calibrating who to be for him. So this is Jeanette about her kind of on-again, off-again boyfriend Mario, um, who's kind of presented in that same because she has the uh, addiction sobriety story. He's kind of presented as like a bad habit You're that right. she has. But I liked that because, again, it's it's sort of going back to this cool girl idea or this hard girl idea where we're pretending like everything's fine and everything's easy. And I'm not constantly calibrating myself, but you are actually. Right. This is like our uh, one of our Sex in the City episodes that we'll come to. Yes, it is. <laughs> Look out for that as well. Um, here's another quote. Mario likes that I'm willing to try it all, that I'm willing to go there, that I am not a barrier to whatever he wants. You're not like other girls, he says, and I wind the words tight around me, a cape. The world is full of other girls, shiny-haired, giggle-glowing, simultaneously pure and sex-enthralled groups of them, worlds of them, walking in community, writhing under club lights, running through parks. But if he says he doesn't like other girls, if I'm not an other girl, he will be mine, not theirs. <laughs> Ooh, so many things in that small paragraph. Right. And we've yeah. talked about all of this. We have, we have. But like, there's so many contradictions in there. Again, the tightrope yeah. we mention all the time of like, you have to be sex enthralled, but also pure. Like you have to right. be all of these opposite things at the same time. And if you happen to slip a little bit on that tightrope, then you're, you're out, ostracized. <laughs> Can we talk about the you're not like other girls trope? So oh. hard. <laughs> oh, so I hate, like I've had a guy probably five years ago actually said that to me and I was like, oh no. Oh, no. Red flag, red <laughs> yeah, exactly. flag. Gone, like, oh, bro. Gosh. <laughs> you said the thing and you said it sincerely. I got to get out of here. <laughs> Next thing you're going to be like, my girlfriend was so bad. And you'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's why. You're gone. You're gone. <laughs> You're gone. Red flag. Mm-hmm. Done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she continues at, now it's my turn to laugh. Mom, I say, I'm 19. It's a bit too late for that, don't you think? And he's not drinking because he can't. And it is the man he was. And I don't love him, okay? I've decided I don't love him. And my voice snags in my throat, comes out hoarse. And then before I know it, I'm gulping and crying. And she's looking at me and shaking her head like she doesn't understand. And I'm thinking, say it, just say it. And then I still can't. Just choose me or him, I scream at her instead. But I would always choose you, she yells back at me. And now she looks like she's going to cry too. Yeah. I think this, the pain of these traumatic things that you try to keep under wraps and when you, it's so scary and raw and vulnerable to admit them and 
the other person involved in this situation, like her mom, is also dealing with these feelings and emotions and hurt. And it's just, it's painful and hard. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pain in that mm-hmm. little, in that paragraph. Mm-hmm. Something else I wanted to talk about or we wanted to talk about was political trauma because I think that's pretty throughout this book. Here's a quote. Uh, so this is from Maria Isabel, who was, again, in Cuba in the 1860s. Um, For Maria Isabel, a scorching anxiety had long replaced those lofty early notions, freedom, liberty. She hated the unknowing. She hated that her own survival depended on a shadowy political figure she could hardly envision. So um, I think that's still the case. I think um, a lot of us feel in a lot of ways, especially marginalized people in every intersection they're in, it gets worse and worse. Like there's things outside of our control and they're impacting our lives and our mental health and our physical health, like all of this stuff. And don't get me wrong, like we can do great work by coming together and... um, forming NGOs or protesting or all these activism and advocacy we can do, but it's still like there are these forces that are right now uh, impacting our lives and out of our control. Um, Right. And just so, uh, I don't know if we say this earlier, so this is based in Cuba during the uh, uh, dictatorship Mm -hmm. and she was, things were changing Mm-hmm. And they talk about literature a lot. I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but mm-hmm. uh, and it's a very big like her becoming a part of the rebellion, her her loves becoming part of the rebellion and seeing change as a mm-hmm. dictatorship and the battles happen and and like it's a big political stance and a lot of trauma. Yeah. So this is kind of that setting. So we have a history, and from what I do know, uh, and I'm sure you do do, uh, Gabriella kind of started. The book based on historical context like this. So it, yes. it was the basis. And that's where we see the background of the descendant Maria, who was the beginning matriarch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That story. And, yeah. And we get uh, these threads of, you see, like enslavement and taxes and abolition and how that's impacting her life. Here's another quote. Then, as she made a turn toward the riverbank where she did the wash each Sunday and bathed in the sun, she stumbled over what felt like a log anchored in grass. She looked down and screamed. A man, his open eyes to the sky and his mouth a permanent expression of disbelief, had his neck impaled by a sword, the pointed end emerging on the other side. Thick, coagulated blood pooled around his head and flies swarmed the wound. Maria Isabel looked up past him and saw it. A field of dozens of men just like him, left rotting in the heat, their innards and flesh unrecognizable, one giant mass of scorched meat. And as a final insult, a hog chomping through the remains, its face and teeth smeared in dark blood. She recognized the face of a fellow tobacco roller. The grass quivered with Maria Isabel, oblivious to the carnage to which it bore witness. It began to rain, and she stood there until a stream of red forced a jagged path to the river. Then she ran in her dress, torn and muddied and soaked, calling out to her mother as when she was a child, calling out to the giant, unheeding span before her, and it fell at the door of their home, her sobs heavy. That night, her mother died. Ooh. Yeah. So... I think that the the fact that Jeanette, as you mentioned, uh, witnessed that body. Um, mm-hmm. There are these sort of connections throughout um, all of these stories and all of this history. And, and 
we always say this in like female first, like it's frustrating how often we'll read something from like the 1800s and we're like, oh, wow, we're still dealing with some of this stuff. Um, and then this idea that she called out to her mother, like in this traumatic moment where she was panicking, mm-hmm. she called out to her mother and then her mother died. I think that's something else we see throughout this is a lot of like mother-daughter relationships and the daughter, like even if the relationship with the mother was strained, like asking the mother for help or calling out to right. the mother. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to that end, I want to include this quick quote about grief. Uh, and Jeanette has wondered whether loss unspoken becomes an inherited trait. Just because, you know, in these conversations with intergenerational trauma, trauma that's sort of passed down, uh, even if you don't talk about it, uh, it still manifests in other ways. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And they don't talk about loss too often either. Like even the different deaths, they mention it and bypass it and then mm-hmm. live in the aftermath of it. So I feel like it's very, somewhat literal as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and continuing on, of course, we want to talk more about the mother-daughter relationships because that is kind of the basis of this book, The Matriarch. And I, I, like, I, we want to come back and talk more about this as well outside of because, again, we, like we said earlier, it's a theme right now. And I've seen this theme as a cultural theme. I don't know if you would agree with me, like, especially with the Latino community, uh, the Asian community, uh, like that, and then like true African communities, like we see that level of matriarch is so heavily based on and how how big of an impact it does have on families. Um, I think it impacts the U.S. as well, but Again, we have a lot more patriarchy uh, and misogynistic ideas in the U.S. to me, especially when it comes to families with that whole westernized Christian idea of the man being the head of the household. That's a whole different conversation. But I feel like this is definitely a huge leaning into like Latino and uh, Asian communities that we're going to talk about soon. Yay, yay, yay. But yeah, so we're going to keep talking about the mother-daughter relationship in this. And then there's a passage in this in her book saying, Maria Isabel's mother, worn down by decades of loss, hard work, nonetheless retained a certain elegance. Her skin was smooth with hardly a line. Her teeth, neat rose unstained. After her husband's death, Aurelia had many callers, men with missing teeth and a sun-weathered papery skin who presented little in the way of wealth. A donkey, a small plot of mango, and plantain trees, but offered care that she brushed off. She said, A woman does not abandon love of God, nor of country, nor of family, she'd say in those days, before the men stopped seeking her out. I will die a widow. Such is my fate in life. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because sort of compared to how they describe Aurelia of like the smooth skin, perfect teeth, and the collars, the male collars being like missing teeth, sun weathered, and then her saying like, you know, kind of this religious, patriotic, family level responsibility of no, I want to die a widow. Right. That's how it is. I'm fine with this. I don't need you. I think it's interesting because Maria's introduction as well, when she talks about the books and and working at the factory, she Mm -hmm. also talks about people looking at her, talking to her. She's like, I don't want that. And and Mm -hmm. kind of that same level of like, these men do not offer the quality I need. (laughs) Kind of that conversation (laughs) or the love. Uh, And I think that was like a comparison to the mother. Like, how dare you come to my mother who was of this elegance? in yeah. this way, offering me a donkey. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that. I like that headstrong sense of like, yeah, yeah, know your worth. Mm-hmm. Know your worth. 
what you want. <laughs> yes. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of themes, recurrent themes about caring for sick guardians and also being the dutiful daughter, which we've talked about before too. Um, here is a quote. The baby's wailing mixed with the firecracker sounds of gun ablaze yelling to the sky. Antonio's mother cut the cord, placing the wriggling infant in Maria Isabel's arms, wrapped a blanket over mother and child. But Maria Isabel pulled herself to stand on wobbly legs, weak, smeared with blood and sweat, trembling. The baby cried out again, and she held it close to her heart, tried to remember the feeling of her mother's arms as a child. So this was Maria Isabel gave birth. This like huge act of like war, rebellion is happening around here. I feel like there's some symbolism there with like, you know, a new country or a new government being born as well. But having that going on around you while you're trying to have a baby and then knowing like this is the life, you're going to raise a child in this environment or either find a way out of this environment, which is a lot of responsibility. Um, Which is a good segue to my next quote, which is um, a, a quote where where it's sort of a stream of consciousness idea of like raising children and uh, the difficulty of being a mother. And it goes, thinks how even the best mothers in the world can't always save their daughters. And so I thought that was a common theme in this too, of like these no-win situations. Like you try your best, but again, there are these external forces. There are these things that are working against you. There are these obstacles that are set up to make things hard for you that just make it impossible (laughs) to win. Mm -hmm. Right. And that brings us to this storyline about, we mentioned earlier about ice um, and how that plays plays a role in all of this. So Jeanette's neighbor, Gloria, is detained by ice and her daughter, Anna, is left at home, her very young daughter, Anna. Um, and Gloria is taken to this Texas Immigration Center. And she says, quote, I do not want my child here where every child has a cough and the guards run their eyes over curves hungry. I do not want my child here, but I do not want her alone thousands of miles away. I want my child safe. If safe were a place, it would look nothing like any of my options. And I want to scream, but I swallow. I want to claw, but I smile because I need to seem good because I need to seem worthy of something, something, some solution. Yeah. So again, like that kind of no-win situation of I don't want her here. I don't want her alone. Right. I don't want to go back where it's dangerous. And, you know, I I really do appreciate that she jumped into talking about ICE. And I don't know how, I'm sure she researched it. I didn't get a background on that. I don't Mm -hmm. know if she was able to visit any because we know it's pretty notoriously. Did she? I think she worked uh, with a... Nonprofit organization in 2014 in Texas. Okay, um, she awesome. has experience with it. Yeah. Oh, I'm, oh, yeah. So I'm wondering if she actually like got to stay because I know right. like for a long time they were trying to hide it and pretend mm-hmm. like it wasn't that bad. Calm down, it's fine. Right. Um, and it wasn't. It was awful. Um, mm-hmm. And as we know, in the state of Georgia, we've had an incident where uh, women were given involuntary hysterectomies, forced to have hysterectomies because eugenics and uh, Georgia's racist, especially when it comes to refugees and immigration. And I really did appreciate that she kind of dug into that. She made it a lot more human. And I think she made it kinder than it needed to be. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. she made it very realistic, but Mm -hmm. I think she really did because in the perspective of Gloria, uh, she was more confused. Like, as we see, because... uh, the country, especially specific states, are not welcoming to uh, refugees and immigration. And in general, it makes it difficult for them to be able to survive constantly and to have uh, access 
to anything or uh, such as healthcare or, uh, you know, IDs. We know this. So I think the level of Gloria being both scared, somewhat relieved, confused, and then just giving in. It's just the the mix. I think she does a wonderful job in relaying the more realistic of what is happening as you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And then... And we'll talk about the results of that later, but I, I found that really fascinating. And I wish we could get more like that. I wish we could get more narrative into that so people can hear it and see it. Because mm-hmm. it needs to be, we need to bring it to light. But anyway, moving on. It continues, sometimes I want to be a fighter as when I consider attacking the men who stand guard over me. What about not caring about the consequences? Throw me in prison, beat me with your batons, give me... Up to the television, another headline. Some moments I want my daughter to return to me, but God forgive me. Others, I want a different life for her, away from me. It's ugly to admit, but don't believe the mothers who tell you motherhood is vocation or sacrifice or beauty or anything on a greeting card. Motherhood, question mark. A constant calculation of what if. What if we just gave up? Yeah. Ooh, it's yeah. powerful. Well, I mean, this is that same narrative, um, and I hate this narrative, about why so many refugees or women in uh, harsh circumstances give up their children for adoption, thinking that they're giving them a better life when it's not necessarily true, or they're being tricked into thinking that, and or they're being tricked into thinking they're just going away for a while and coming back. That's a whole different conversation, and essentially the system preying on on these vulnerabilities because you don't want your child to suffer the things that you have suffered yep. and try to give them the best life you can. It is and it becomes such a mixed bag mm-hmm. uh, to so many things. But yeah, that that was mm. yeah. Well another thing we wanted to talk about that you mentioned um is literature because throughout the book there's there are these reoccurring uh, themes around literature and kind of like connecting people through generations because Maria Isabella was reading uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame or Les, Les Miserables um, and then other, like Jeanette was, like it, you see that kind of go. Um, so Maria Isabel, oh, I think I said Maria Isabel earlier. Sorry, sorry. Maria Isabel, um, in response to her wedding proposal, said, quote, uh, she said yes, though she meant perhaps wedding vows had long ceased to signal escape. She said yes because she had nothing left, and a learned man seemed as hopeful a prospect as she could conceive. And she sensed that he, too, sought a conciliation through marriage. In Maria Isabel, Antonio had found a way to flee without lusting after other shores, had found a reason to feign a braver face each day. She knew and, despite the weight of it, accepted her role as liberator of a frightened man. Maria Isabel thought it had always been women who wove the future out of the scraps, always the characters, never the authors. She knew a woman could learn to resent this post, but she would instead find a hundred books to read. Yeah, so she was, um, as we mentioned, she was the one who learned to read in her community. Uh, She was the first woman to learn to read, and she would read to the workers during their lunch hour. She was kind of, she was kind of forced out because of that and other reasons as well. But it was something that was so important to her and that she found so much solace in and so much connection in. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And it goes on, in the margin of one page, Carmen showed her, was Jeanette's handwriting below another note in faded script that seemed to spell out the same thing. We are force, the scribble read. And then Jeanette had added her own words. We are more than we think we are. Though Anna had no idea why Jeanette had written those words, she chose to believe the sentence, the scribble, was a cry across time. Women, certain women, we are more than we think we are. There was always more. So this was in reference to uh, the book. Uh, this was what the book that was been handed down from generation to generation. Jeanette had actually gone to Cuba at one point in time, saw the book in her grandmother's place, tried to steal it because apparently she's kind of a klepto, and then got caught, put it back. And after she left, the grandmother sent it to her as a gift. Unfortunately, she had passed before then. So uh, Carmen, the mother, kept it. But yeah, so the we are fours was a continued uh, mantra that Maria Isabella would say, even when her husband had died, like all these things, being a rebel, like constantly reminding herself as the matriarch that we are a force. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that idea of this connection throughout these generations, throughout time. Um, Yeah. That's what I love about short stories. They connect it. <laughs> yes. We love it. We love it. Um, something we don't love, um, sexism, racism, uh, <laughs> which is big throughout as well. Um, so you do have Maria Isabel, who was a cigar roller, talking about how she was kind of the only woman. So here's a quote. True that cigar rolling was a coveted, respectable job. She'd apprenticed for nearly a year to working for a wage. Yet the factory paid her by the piece, half of what the men earned. And she was the only woman in the shop and knew the men resented her. And she has a whole thing with her boss abusing her. Um, So you see also that 
unfortunately, throughout time of the sexism impacting all of these women. Right. Which is why I also think she did like her husband and accepted her husband. Was He was the one that taught her to read and mm-hmm. knew she had an interest. So it was like he was lifting her up and seeing her worth. So that was a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on. One day as I played with two school friends, one of the Christian missionaries approached and spoke in Spanish to me. She said, quote, Despite having so little, she said, you're so happy. You could teach the children in my country so much about what's really important in life. I hadn't known until the moment that I had so little. Even as an adult, when I had experienced enough to place my own life in comparison, I marveled at the woman's comment. I wondered what she'd expected. Sad, poor people being sad and poor at every sad, poor moment of their lives. She mistook happiness for what it was, how we survive and build lives out of the strings we hold. But she must have known deep down that she was lying to herself. She had said, I knew the secret, what was really important in life, what made a person happy. And oh my God, isn't that so important about Christian missionaries? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that savior complex and mm-hmm. the pity, the pity compliments. And you really just want to smack them and be like, they're fine. They've survived without you. There's a few things. If you want to help with medical supplies, if you want to help build some buildings, if you want to help get clean water, okay. But don't come over here <laughs> right. telling us our life is not happy. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of that conversation we had around how people will comment on folks with disabilities and yes. feel like it's their business um, to essentially make themselves feel better. Right. This is about them. Exactly. Exactly. This is why it's not appropriate. Continue on. Uh, this I still haven't gotten used to. The blatant racism, how it commingles with revolutionary fervor at times in the older generation in a way that seems unlikely. But perhaps I am naive, and racism among even revolutionaries is as obvious as me sticking a lacy thong in my pocket at 16. As obvious as the fact I am no good. I say nothing. Yeah, um, and then here's another quote. But it isn't as though Black Cubans fare better in Miami where racism is just slightly more polite, a little quieter. This is the fact. In Miami, Cuban is synonymous with white. In Miami, Cubans will scoff when you call them Latino. I'm not Latino, I'm Cuban, they will say, by which they mean I am white, another kind of white you don't know about, outsider. So Gabriela Garcia has a really good essay about this and her mm-hmm. experience and thoughts around this that you should definitely look up. It's, it's worth reading so much. But I thought that was important and interesting part of the conversation to bring up that like proximity to whiteness. Right. Well, yeah, like passing, uh, white passing is a bigger conversation. Colorism within all the communities, all of the communities are very heavy and prevalent. And we we need to talk about that because there is a preferential and there is an othering of that. And that's so like offensive in itself. And the fact that people are so ignorant not to realize just because uh, an ethnicity you have a mindset of one ethnicity. That's not true for the entire population. So you need to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. Yes, agreed. Uh, so to close out, we wanted to include a few quotes about um, the section on Jeanette and Anna when Gloria, Anna's mom, Gloria, has been taken, detained by ICE, and Jeanette brings Anna to her house and is taking care of her and trying to figure out what to do with her. 
So here's a quote. Jeanette closes the door to her bedroom. She lies back on the bed and balances her laptop on her stomach. Google searches, what happens to children if their parents are deported? A link to Child Protective Services, a link to family detention centers in the region, to lawyer after lawyer after lawyer. Another search, how to find someone detained, an immigration and customs enforcement database that requires an alien registration number for the detainee. No phone number she can find, lawyer after lawyer after lawyer. So that, the confusion and like no clear answer and nobody was really willing to help you is pretty big in this whole thing. Here's another quote. Wet squeaking through her house and leaving muddy imprints. She walks past Anna, drawing still, drawing a house, drawing a bird. Jadette takes the phone to her room, but she doesn't call Mario. She closes her eyes and tries to remember the opiate rush, the watery calm, the hit to the brain, delicious, sleepy coasting, his voice in her ear. Don't you feel every molecule that surrounds you? Everything is holding you now. She doesn't call him after she's called the cops. She doesn't call him even when the police car pulls up and she hears Anna opening the door and call her name and her heart is thumping in her chest. And she feels for the first time, no, this is what it's like to break. Um, yeah, it's a really heartbreaking scene. Like, Jeanette tried all these things and has no options. And right. everyone kept telling her to call the police. So she did. And going back to that idea of like no win situations. And it's just so, so sad. Right. There's so much to this. And yeah, the breakdown of the book, just so y'all know, is that after Jeanette tries all these things, she calls the cops. Her mom encourages her to call the cops, saying there's nothing you can do. If you don't do this, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. You, these are the bad things that are going to happen to you. And so she does. Turns out that Anna had been with the babysitter. Gloria was hoping that the babysitter would have kept her and kept her as her own, essentially, and give her a life that she couldn't. But then she came back. They get deported. <laughs> And they get deported to Mexico, which that's not where they're from. They're from El Salvador. So they get dropped off into Mexico, even though she had repeatedly told the people asking for help that she did not live in Mexico. Please don't deport me there. They get stuck there. Anna tries to take care of her mom. Again, that generational stuff happens because Anna grows older. Um, she's trying to take care of her mom. A lot of sadness happens in that. Um, there's so many heartbroken moments that you're just like, why? And for me personally, I've had the similar situation, not this necessarily, but where we have had to, like if a kid gets in trouble or a family is undocumented, we were required by law to contact the embassy and report them. I will tell this, and they can't do anything to me. I refuse to do so. I would never. Because I'm like, I'm not doing this. This is obnoxious. And if we do this, we're sending the family away from the child because the child was born in the U.S. and it's a whole problem, which there is no solution and no one wants to help you. Even when we try to find lawyers ourselves as government workers, it was impossible. And there's that one scene in which Gloria tries to talk to someone who tries to get her to sign away something that she couldn't read and understand. He's like, if you don't do it, which I'm pretty sure is why she got deported, but also... Yeah, Jeanette's solution was to call a lawyer and the lawyer talks to her and be like, if you send me $5,000, I can help you. And it's so painful. It's so painful. I will say we do have an amazing group of lawyers in Georgia. Uh, one of them being like somewhat of friends, a mutual, I guess is what I know. And she's they are amazing in working with the immigration uh, and refugee clients here in Georgia. But it's, there's so, so few of them. It's so few that they can't take on the cases. But it's so frustrating, but it's so real. And yeah, it keeps going. Um, 
They killed your uncle six months later. You still latched to my chest. You still sleeping in a bundle by my side. I will spare you the details and say only this. I made a choice again for you. And I'm sorry I had nothing else to offer, Anna. But there are no real rules that govern why some are born in turmoil and others never know a single day in which next seems an ill-considered bet. It's all lottery, Anna. All chance. It's the flick of a coin and we are born. And yeah, so this is after... Anna comes back to uh, be reunited with her mom, which is a better scenario than some. But it's it, yeah, it's so sad in this intergenerational. Also, one of the things that we didn't talk about is that Carmen and her mother no longer have a relationship. And they kept saying she left and it was political reasons. It was political reasons. And then it turns out that Carmen had witnessed her mother disposing of the body of her father after the mother had killed the father, who was abusive. And Carmen never saw that portion because her mom tried to protect her. So there's so many layers to this and then the like ill sad, sadness that they all lost touch with their mother somehow. Anna left after the death of her mother, tried to connect back with Jeanette only to discover Jeanette had died of an overdose, but connected with Carmen. So that was an interesting ending. Mm-hmm. Kind of hopeful maybe. Yeah. I say that shakingly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's so much of it is, as we said, is beautiful and heartbreaking. And I love, I feel like all the characters and all the connections and all the trauma, like you can see why they made the decisions that they did. And we obviously really loved it. Highly recommend it. Yes. It's Go great check fiction. It out. I think it's what beautifully written. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot of conversations about mother-daughter bonds and what mothers do for their children, what the children see and try to mm-hmm. do for themselves and to for their mothers as well sometimes and how it can go awry no matter what. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, yes. No, it's really, it's really wonderfully written. So please check it out if you haven't already. In the meantime, if you have a book you'd like to suggest to us, please do. Our email is stephadiamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Steph. I never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. 
So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.